0: CNFers, my CNF buddies, dig the new song? I know some of you are probably rolling your eyes, and I get it, but there's something about that charge I get from the almighty riff. It's also episode 80, so go big or go home. So what shenanigans are we up to here? This is the Creative Nonfiction Podcast, and I'm your host, Brendan O'Mara, and I speak with the world's best artists about creating works of nonfiction, Leaders in the world of narrative journalism, personal essay, memoir, radio, and documentary film. They come here to talk about their origins, their inspirations, their work habits, so that maybe you can cherry-pick and apply a lot of their tools of mastery to your own work. For episode 80... I had the privilege of speaking to Elizabeth Marshall Thomas who co-authored Tamed and Untamed with Cy Montgomery of Episode 79 fame. Elizabeth's career is wide, vast, and prolific as you'll soon hear. And you can check out her website and her work by going to show notes at brendanomera.com. Head over to her site and you can learn far more about Elizabeth and her work. In this episode, we talk about lessons she learned from reading Ernest Hemingway, the power of ignorance, walking off with wolves in the Arctic, it's a thing and it happened, how circumstances organize the work and the clear feeling of the early hours. And while we continue to party on here in the intro, I cordially ask you for an honest operative word honest review over on the itunes it's what drives visibility and credibility to cnfers like yourself so send me a screenshot of your review and i will give you a free hour of my time to edit a piece of your work you give you get tis the season make sure that review is time in december 2017 and you are golden so now sit back relax and enjoy the podcast. Thanks for listening. Uh,
1: my hobby is making quilts. So, and I'm making three quilts for three people, and uh, I kind of like doing it. It's hard work, but I like it. And uh, a friend of mine and I wrote a book together. Simon Montgomery and I wrote a book called uh, Tamed and Untamed, and um, it's a lot of work to do to for the publicity part of that, we've had a lot of book signings and interviews and appearances and stuff. And uh, that all takes time. And it's very hard to write for me with a lot of other stuff clanging around. It's, it's, uh, you have to, I have to just be alone and concentrate and go into that other world that you're writing about.
0: It's, you know, it's funny. You, you mention you know, Quilting and then untamed and untamed, almost in the same sense, because in a in a in a way, it's a, that book is a is a quilt of your yes. in size essays, right? <laughs> yes,
1: <laughs> yes, it is. You know, the two occupations are strangely very much alike. So it's it's you know, I enjoy doing both.
0: And what was the the uh, process of co-authoring? a book like you know what was that what were the machinations of that because most people in you know yourself included have written several books that are just you are the the pitcher on the mound you know you're the one author but yeah. the, you know in this one I know you and Cy have been friends for for years and years uh, so what was the experience like to sort of uh to do split duty uh, double duty on a book
1: well, we, we together wrote a column for the Boston Globe, a newspaper, mm-hmm. and uh, she would write for the first week, and I would write for the next week, or the two weeks or something, whatever the schedule was, I don't remember. And um, so we had a lot of essays from that, and and then the Globe discontinued the section of the paper in which the column occurred, so, um, we, so we stopped writing it, of course. And a publisher asked us what what we would think of putting these essays together in a book. So we did. And not only that, but we added quite a few. No, we added maybe a certain percent of the essays in their original just because we felt like it wanted to add some more. And it was very, it was, I love, I love doing it. And I think she did, and I—I I know I did too. And we—we uh, we, we're hoping to do it again sometime. It's very, very, very fun, and it's quite easy. If you—if if you write an essay, it's—it it's, has one subject. Uh, you don't have to tie it to anything else. It has to make sense only in itself. <laughs> yeah. And uh, and uh, it's fairly easy to do and fairly fast. And you can write about anything you want if you're writing an essay. You don't have to stick to anything, so I loved it.
0: And was there a, a, a method to uh, you and shy uh, sorry you and shy you and shy sharing uh, sharing the stage? Like, did, did you originally want it to like alternate a lot, or did you realize that maybe in say like dogs and cats section, I think like you have a, let's say, you know pardon the pun but like a lion's share of of that section is there a was there a rhyme or rhythm to how you guys divided up the work
1: uh, no, no we we had just written the essays, and we for the girl we, when we were writing the column, we just wrote the column, she wrote what she wanted to write about. The first week, I wrote what I wanted to write about. The second week, and I happen to write a lot of things about dogs and cats, mm. <laughs> which is why I my stuff is is higher in those. Hers is higher in many other things, probably more other things. But we have about an equal number of essays in there.
0: Uh, yeah, it's what's great in in reading reading about your uh, your career and your work is like this the. The global, the globality of it, if you will. And, uh, you know, your, your first, yeah. and, uh, you know, harmless people being your, your first book, I believe, you know, you were in the fifties. You went to what is now Namibia to, to, you know, to follow some of the final or last hunter gatherer, uh, peoples on the continent, really.
2: And,
0: yeah. And, uh, you know, at that point in your life, what was pushing you in that direction?
1: Well, my dad, he wanted to go there. So, he took us with him. <laughs> mm-hmm. I was in my late teens, but I was thrilled to go. And I loved being there, and it was probably the most important, single most important thing I ever did in my life, aside from marrying my husband and having my kids. I mm-hmm. think that was it.
0: And uh, and what made you want to sort of pick up the, the pen and make something of that experience?
1: I liked to write before that. Okay, I was in college, and... Um, I was in, uh, I went to Smith. Okay. And I, I was, uh, this is a strange thing to say, but forced to transfer to Radcliffe, which I was lucky to be able to do because my parents wanted me to take a course in anthropology and Smith didn't have an anthropology department. Okay, so I went to Radcliffe and I, I liked to write and I had, I, I did all kind of, kinds of things like writing. I also liked to to paint. I, if I say so myself, I wasn't that bad at it. Mm-hmm. But, the, but the writing was compelling. And the other thing is, and I was asked to major, I was supposed to, ma- I mean, my parents advised me or wanted me to major in English because that seemed to be the best thing for a woman to do at the time. But they wanted me to take courses in anthropology, so I did both of those. And in the English major you could get you could not get credit for a writing course unless it was unless you were a major in English. And then you could. So that also helped made me decide to major in English. And I did, and I wrote a lot and I won a prize for writing a short story. So I was already writing by the time I went to the to the Kalahari.
0: Yeah, and winning winning that that prize in a sense puts a little fuel in your tank and validates you that like okay, this is something I could possibly do something with.
1: Well, I I well after I wrote the story, a publisher asked me to to write a book about the experience. So I thought, okay, hmm. <laughs> and I did. <laughs>
0: huh. So in in a sense, who who were you modeling yourself after and? at the time when you when you were starting to take up this kind of work like who did you see yourself becoming and who were those maybe mentors even if they were just in books
1: i didn't have mentors nobody the answer is nobody i mean i didn't know you had to have one <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so i just did it by myself i might have been better off with a mentor but i i i really didn't have one i had a very wonderful agent and I I liked her very much. She was she was super, and the publishers were super. The editor who I had at the time was was uh, uh, very helpful and very nice. I mean that just if you just do it, you'll get the people around that area will step in. I think.
0: It, so what were some of your early growing pains as you're you know not having uh, the rudder that can be a mentor to help help kind of uh, guide you in the right direction. Like what was early experiences that, you know, yeah. Like those growing pains as you, as you developed as a young writer.
1: Well, Hmm. Hmm. That's a good question. I I took a, 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 there was one course that was very hard to get into, but a lot of people who turned out to be pretty good writers got into it and they were in it at the time. And I would say it was taught by Archibald McLeish poet who, and, um, it was it was a great class. It was another excuse to write, but I think that um, just the what just being in that class was helpful. I guess I, I don't think I followed a very traditional pathway. I just did what I felt like doing <laughs> <laughs> and kept on doing it. But uh, Ted Hogan was in that class, and he he he's he's a wonderful writer and i still remember that he wrote a wonderful book about one uh, he 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 was a he joined a circus and was one of the caregivers of the of the animals and he wrote about he wrote about that in in catman is the book that he wrote it's a wonderful book and i still remember sentences up from it <laughs> mm. so that kind of thing is 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 very good for people
0: yeah, I think. It, yeah. 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 And what kind of books were you into and reading as you were, you know, you know, right, say before and just after you were starting to write your own books? You know, what were some of those that you were into that helped shape the type of writing that you wanted other people to read?
1: Well, I mean, if you major in English, you've got to read a lot of books mm-hmm. and books. Uh, so I did. Yeah. <laughs> Luckily passed the test.
2: <laughs> yeah.
1: But, I, I, you know, somebody who, who was influencing an awful lot of people at the time was Hemingway. I mean, there's a lot of poetry and a lot of writing that I love, but I don't write like those people. And I don't, can't. nobody can say they write like Hem- Hemingway because nobody does. But um i, I just like shorter direct statements and um uh, a certain simplicity in what you're writing about and also i and also another thing very many writers um uh, they describe over describe what the what the subject of the of the novel is doing, or what the scenery is around, and so forth and so on, and I uh, I find that a little irritating. So I don't do I don't do that unless it's very important to say what the scenery is around. And uh, uh, Hemingway didn't either. I notice he never does that. He never did that. And uh, but Hemingway I don't can't imagine there's a person who Hemingway did not influence. So I was one of them.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's a, the description part is really important. Like some people, I probably people, I, and I, I think I've been guilty of this too, is that you, you're guilty of over describing because you feel like you need to, yeah, you need to like paint the picture. But in reality, if you just kind of lay out the most simplest thing, just maybe let the, if there's a certain tree, just maybe let the reader you know picture whatever tree it is that they want you know yeah, geographically yes. i mean out west you know deciduous trees are not native you know it's more evergreen so of course you mm. need to get some of those facts right but by and large it's like well yeah let the let the reader sort of patch in holes and uh you know give them that credit and don't you don't have to force feed every single detail down their throat
1: yeah exactly Yes, he he walked toward the door. He grasped the handle. He turned the handle. He opened the door. He went through the door. He was in the next room. You can just skip it and say, "Well, in the next room, such and such happened."
2: <laughs> right.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so, so, what oh, and did... then you describe the room. <laughs> <Yeah>. Yes. Yes. <laughs> nobody cares. Yeah.
0: So what did you? What was a great uh, or a takeaway from? From your first book project of the the Harmless People, and how did you? What was the next steps for you as you parlayed that into your you know your next projects as you were you know snowballing a career? Yeah.
1: Well, the um, interestingly, my agent submitted the Harmless People to the New Yorker, and they turned it down. And but then the editor of the New Yorker asked my agent why she hadn't submitted to him. And she said she did, but it was turned down. And he said, oh, well, would she write it? Would would Mrs. Thomas write another book? And uh, the answer is resounding yes. (laughs) And then I thought I'd been, well, I did Hunter Gatherers. Now I'll do Pastoral People. And I went to Uganda with the support of The New Yorker and wrote another book called Warrior Herdsman about the the Dodoth of northern Uganda who there is sort of, they're like something like the Maasai, they're central Nilo-Hamites, that's what the anthropologists call them, and they, um, related languages and so forth, and related, um, um, lifestyle. They, they, they're all pastoral. They have, these people, they have large herds of cattle, and they measure their wealth, as it were, in cattle, not in money, or they did, and still do. And, uh, it was, to me, quite fascinating. My kids, I had two little kids by that time, and I brought them with me. Wow. And people, well, people said, you brought your kids to Africa. <laughs> and I th- well, yeah, there's lots of other kids in Africa. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs>
0: well, so I, I can't, what's, it's amazing to me, like, the, um, I know, I, I think there's, it must have been, I mean, it's, it, there's a, a fearlessness about you know your your willingness to step into you know foreign countries and they have foreign cultures and to do this this kind of work that I think a lot of people lack. And um where did that that fearlessness come from to be able to pursue the the, the kind of stories you were pursuing early in your career?
1: Well I'm not sure <laughs> I'm well I've kept on doing it. I mean I don't do it now. I'm too old now but I was not too old then, and but I'm not sure it's fearlessness. I think it's well. It, it, I guess it's fearlessness in a way, but it's also a little bit of ignorance because I, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't know that. I mean, I thought cars were bulletproof, which they're not. <laughs> and the the Daudoth were fighting with another group called the Trukanas, and the Trukanas had rifles. The Dadoths had spears. Mm. And so a raid, uh, raid by Turkanas on the people where I was would have result, might have resulted in bullets flying, but I thought I'll just get in the car and. <laughs> 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 it will
0: be all right. The so instrument
1: a- is very helpful. <laughs> yeah. Or it can be. I I'm, met I'm Eddie Amin. He came. He came. Uh, nobody knew his importance at the time he was a colonel in the King's African Rifles and the army came up to try to put an end to the raiding and he did some terrible things, he, he went with the people, the people I knew went with him because they were going to see about a raid that had just taken place, the Turkanas, who were east of the had come up from the uh, Rift Valley and, uh, and taken some cattle so the so Idi Amin took the took his soldiers uh, down into the Rift Valley. They went into into Kenya. We were very close to the Kenya border, and they went into Kenya after the Draganas, which was a raid, which was completely illegal. It was that was war type thing, and uh, they killed a lot of people. They found a village and killed the people. Terrible. Hmm. And they. they uh, Somebody I knew saw Eddie, I mean, a little girl was sitting by her was crying, holding on to her mother who was dying or, or, or already had died. Eddie, I mean took the little girl and broke her back with a stone and. Left. Oh. And the, even the Dodos, who I mean they were warriors and then some. They were horrified by that, and if you can horrify a Dadaoth, you <laughs> um, anyway, it was, it, I mean, okay, he did that kind of thing. Then he came back up with his, he, with, he shot some cattle and brought the body of a man back up to the, to the, to the, to the higher ground where the, the Dadaoth lived. And he came to my camp with the body. And he asked me to take it in my vehicle down about fifty miles to a government center. Hmm. And uh, so, what do you do? Do you do you leave your kids with Idi Amin, or do you put them in the car with a corpse and drive them for fifty miles? <laughs> That's one reason not to take your kids. But I, I said, <laughs> I I, 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 <laughs> I thought I'll do the I'll do the uh, I'll do the woman thing and seem helpless and ignorant and. And uh, I did, and I said, "Well, my car isn't strong like your big army trucks, and I, I don't know if I can drive well enough to, <laughs> to do that." And he was angry, but he, but he, he, he went stamping away, and uh, so I didn't have to. I mean, I didn't do it.
2: Wow! Of
1: course, of course. So then, when what? Then I found out later that the guy who had done that was Idi I so not everybody's met Idi. I mean, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, wow.
0: So what happened after that?
1: Well, oh, he 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 put the body in in a truck and it took it away. I don't know where he
0: took it. Wow! And was that the? Uh, did you have any more overlap after that, or was that the extent of it?
1: Not with him. The rating went on, but he mm-hmm. wasn't there,
0: which was good. Poof. Wow! Yeah. So So, so um, with the with these first three big stories you you wrote about, um, how did you go about cultivating the access you needed to pursue those stories, and with uh with such you know rigor and and access?
1: By stories, you mean about the Dada? Or
0: yeah, yeah, just the the stories that you pursued in Africa. You know, how did you? line those up and get access so that you are able to freely sort of report on on those cultures.
1: Oh, well the 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 people that all the people I met were were really very nice. They took us in, they helped us, they they understood what we were doing. They were in favor of it. It was not me, it was them. Uh and I met some very wonderful people and uh, was and kept in touch more or less in from the Kalahari. Um, let me return to the Kalahari for a minute.
2: Mm-hmm. The
1: area we went to was about 120,000 square miles, which was quote unquote unexplored. And, uh, I mean, it was called that because white people hadn't been in there. Yeah. But, um, but the, but the, the Bushmen are now called the Sand. Um, were pre-contact and they had been in there for, oh, well, two, the archaeological work was done later and one encampment was found to have had continuous occupancy for over 80,000 years and another for over 30,000 years without any particular change in the material culture. So what we were seeing was something that had gone on for, you know, that many thousands of years. Uh, that's the way our we descended from the sand the i mean the sand were the first people that's been shown genetically and um, by DNA studies and uh, so that's what we humanity was like for for a long time and uh they they i'm diverting a little, but if you've been there for eighty thousand years, you've done the exploring. I mean, they they, they knew they knew every inch of those one hundred twenty thousand miles, and now I can't remember what I was what why I was talking about this. Oh, if I think about being uh, they were they had heard about white people. They hadn't met them, but they'd heard about them because the everybody in that in that area, all the same people, they were interconnected in one way or another. And they would visit each other and news would travel from one side of the space to the other in about a year. So if someone had a bad experience with white people, which everybody did, <laughs> everybody who had encountered white people had a bad experience. They were a little suspicious of us but they at first, but we, I mean, they were very gracious. They let us use their water. There was no surface water, there were no rivers, no lakes, no nothing in the dry season. So we had to share. We had to. Somebody had to be nice enough to let us use their water from their water waterhole, and the people offered it to us. They they were glad. They were very generous and welcoming. That that's part of their culture is is to to get along with other people and the, and to get everybody gets along well. And I mean that's their that's their the whole culture is designed for that and. Uh, I mean the marriage system, the kinship system, the, who who you're named for—that system, uh, partnerships of various kinds—they're all designed for cohesion, and uh, because that's survival for them, that was survival for them, and uh, we've kind of lost that. I think the Neolithic ruined that, but but uh, but uh, it was it was very interesting to see.
0: Yeah, the Sebastian Younger's latest book. Tribe kind of talks about that about how you know the tribal cultures are sort of more. You know, uh, uh, I don't know. They look out for each other more. People are more satisfied in those cultures. We found that uh you know the you know the American colonists or well, the British colonists would come over here and they would some would if they were taken by some the native peoples that they came back to society, they would often run back to the tribal culture and eschew the Western civilization. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah I, I'm sure you kind I'm of saw that so. firsthand. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yes, that's true. That's true. But it's infectious. The Western culture is infectious. And mm. it's, it's once, once, well, the, uh, the same people today keep it to some degree. Oh, I know what I was going to say. Um, all that time and all that space um um uh, and, and the way they lived but I'm I mean now it, it took us months to, to find people mm. and we just tried and tried because that we there was nobody who knew where the water sources were so we couldn't have a guide or anything um but um when we found people Let's see. I still can't remember where I was. It'll pop up. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. That's okay.
0: Uh, In this process, like what, um, like in doing this kind of this kind of work, like where did you feel most uh, engaged and uh, most alive in this process? Was it like in the in the field doing the research or? What did it end up being like when you came back and trying to process and organize it? Like What most appealed you, to you?
1: In the field, in the field, yeah. yes. And after I did t- two books about people, I wrote a couple of novels about Paleolithic people. But then I began to write about animals, which is what I wanted to do in the first place. Mm-hmm. And so, And then I felt much more engaged when I was in the field. Okay. I mean, I uh, it's transporting to do that. It's it's fascinating.
0: Yeah, that's kind of where I wanted to it's great that you're taking us there because I wanted to given that your 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 early work was um, you know, human-based and then you made the pivot to animals to covering and uh, writing about animals and um what made you want to make that that pivot? Well, like you said, it was something you always wanted to do. So um yeah. What, so what finally prompted that that moment to get to the core of what you really wanted to write about?
1: That's a good question, but I had a sort of hot subject, which was dogs. And, mm-hmm. uh, oh, another thing is that um, by by that time, my kids were older, and I they had to go to school, so they weren't portable as they had been before.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So I was more or less at home, just not doing anything in particular except being a housewife, and I thought, I thought uh, that it would be, I thought, uh, but uh, we had a dog at the time, we were taking care of somebody else's dog, who roamed around, there was no leash law, so he could roam, and he roamed, and he'd come back, and then he'd go off again, and he'd come back, and I wondered what he was doing, mm-hmm. and I thought, you know, why don't I find out what he was doing? Um Uh, this was very interesting for me. It led me to a lot of things. And so I, and you don't need anybody to, to. you don't need any funding to do that. You just need a dog and a pencil and a notebook. And uh, I had that. So I began following him. And I. it opened a world that I would, I wasn't surprised to find. I suspected it was out there, but it was, it was very interesting. And after that, I wrote about, I've written about animals all the time. I I later went to Baffin Island, which is way up in the Arctic Circle, as you know, and it was daylight all the time. I went with some people who were studying, they, they were studying caribou. They had studied the wolves, and they were studying caribou at that time. And I separated from them and went by myself to, so I was all by myself uh, to where there were a den of wolves and the wolves um, were raising a letter. Three three adults, uh, 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 um, I would call them a married couple, uh, mother and father wolf. They're three offsprings from the year before and a new letter of pups. Hmm. And, uh, and uh, they they uh, like the other like the people, like the the and the and the sand, they put up with me. they let me be there and or they didn't move, they didn't leave. they didn't bother me. They'd come and look, and when I was asleep, there was a little cave that I found, a little bitty cave, and I slept in that, and uh, they would come when I was asleep huh. and examine my things, but they they could have had me for lunch, and it would have saved them a lot of trouble, yeah, they didn't, yeah they didn't i didn't have any gun or anything i mean it's their land not mine and i'm gonna go i wouldn't want to go somewhere and tell the people that i was the creatures that i was there to see any more than i would if they were human and uh so that was that was i mean that the, the dog thing led me to that that was a terrific experience. I never wrote a book about that as such. I include it in almost everything else that I write, however, mm-hmm. <laughs> The Arctic is wonderful. It's always, at that time of year, it was in the summer, mm-hmm. and it's always about 11 o'clock. The sun never sets, and 11 o'clock in the morning is an optimistic time. I mean, the day is in the middle of the day, and the night is far away, and you've got plenty of time, and it's just a very good feeling. It's nice.
0: Wow. So what made gave you the the confidence to go off on your own and to go seek uh, a a familial pack of wolves and and sort of live in their orbit? And I don't know, did you at any point feel threatened that they might uh, choose to feed you to their pups? (laughs) No,
1: it it didn't. No, it didn't occur to me that they would. I mean, yeah, historically. Wolves have caused very, very few. Somebody did a study of deaths of people caused by wolves, and the only one – there were very, very few. And the only one I remember is uh, a man who dressed up as a bear (laughs) and a bear cub and pretended he was injured. (laughs) Uh And the wolves came (laughs) and got him. Yeah. But but I don't think you I, I don't again it wasn't it wasn't courage or fearlessness it was just it was sheer sure ignorance mm-hmm. and I didn't know well I didn't know but I uh, the, uh, polar bears are would be dangerous a polar mm-hmm. bear would be dangerous but the polar bears really didn't go inland very much and the the uh, I never saw one so never saw one there so I don't know what I would have done if I saw one but. Huh. I'd have thought of something. or tried to. <laughs>
0: yeah how how long did you hang out with the with the wolves up there? I was
1: there for a summer, mm-hmm. several months, a couple of months, three, and it was heaven. I just loved it. It was heaven. I've seldom been happier than I was there. Huh. And the wolves were fascinating. They worked. That's all they did was work. I mean, they hunted, mm-hmm. and then they, or slept. When I first got there, um one of the, one of the people from the, who were studying caribou, they had been there before and they knew where the dens were. So one of them showed me this den. And when, when we arrived, uh, there was no, no wolf at the den. But um but when they found that I was, when I, when, then they found that I was there. After that, they always had a babysitter. Oh, someone would return from hunting would go up on a high rock where the pups couldn't reach her and bother her and she would sleep and the others hunted and then another one would come in from hunting and the babysitter would go hunting again Hmm. and the newcomer would would sleep but they never left them alone after i was there which i think tells you something well i mean wolves are brilliantly smart yeah uh, yeah
0: what did you notice uh, simil- similarities between, say, the 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 neighborhood dog that you were following and these wild wolves in the Arctic summer? Well, what do you notice between the two that struck you as similar?
1: That's a good question, and I don't really have an answer because they—I mean—they were both dog types, but uh, you know they acted. The wolves acted like dogs, and the dogs acted like wolves, but <laughs> naturally. But um, the the dog, what he wanted to do, I think, was establish his supremacy um, wherever he went. He had varying degrees of luck with that. The wolves didn't have to; they had their theirs. They were the only wolves in that particular area, and they had their their social relations all figured out. I never saw any struggle for supremacy or a sign of one will saying i'm better than you or i'm above you on the on the on the wolf ladder um it, it just didn't happen everybody knew everybody else and they what they had it one they were united in that they had a common goal which was to feed themselves and each other and most, that's true of almost anything that lives in the wild especially uh, uh birds and mammals they they uh
0: so after you've gone into the field and you've filled up your notebooks, uh, how what's your next uh, steps as you begin to organize and process the research? Oh,
1: I just start writing. I mean, I, lots of people figure the book out before they write it, and I should do that too because it 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 makes the the book better and everything easier. But I I don't, and I maybe I should. Maybe next time I write a book, I will. <laughs> but I just don't. I just start writing. I think of something and write it, <laughs> mm-hmm. and then and and it kind of flows from there. Um, it, it really isn't the best way to do to, to write a book, but I don't know. I kind of like it. I mean, I I write for fun, you could say. So I might as well do it the way I want and and have fun doing it. But um, I think it, it it probably is better to organize it ahead of time. But also, the, the, there's one other thing, in which is that circumstances organize it for you. I mean, the, the, there's a procession, and when you go someplace and watch what's happening, something will happen, and stuff will go on, something. Mm-hmm. And that that's the key to what you're going to write about. I mean, that's kind of haphazard, but it, it works.
2: Yeah. It, or it did
1: for me. It yeah. worked for me. I mean, I'm not saying that my stuff is... My work is, you know, the greatest literature, but it's it's not bad literature, not at all, and uh, so I mean, it's, it's acceptable. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I think it's more than acceptable. <laughs> yeah. Like, how do you go about, you know, setting up your your days and your mornings to? ensure that you have uh, a successful day at at the ledger you know like when do you wake up and like how do you know you even said when you're in the arctic like 11 a.m is like the most optimistic time so maybe like that's a real sweet spot for you so like how do you you know set up your your days so you know you're getting the most out of your writing time
1: oh that's a fascinating question thanks for asking it (laughs) i find that i find i get i wake up very early well my dogs sleep in the same bed with me, and when breakfast time comes, at, and breakfast time comes at about four a.m., mm. sometimes sometimes three thirty, and uh, which is fine. And I get up, and I feed the dogs and the cats, and and then I start working. And by by four thirty, I might be working,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and then you have you have four hours until anything can happen. I mean, nobody's going to call you up. You can't go and do errands. There's there's nothing you can do except work, and it's a wonderful, clear feeling. I think. So, and by that time, by the time you've been working for four hours, you're in it. You're going, yeah. and uh, then the disturbances don't 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 bother you that much, and you don't get very many anyway. And uh, so you can just keep going. And I love to do that. I just I can work all day until dark, from dark morning before the sun rises till after it sets, perfectly happily. And um, I get very involved and uh, and uh, enjoy doing it. And I just have to let the dogs out once in a while, and you know, mm-hmm. do something for them. Give them a little snack at dinner time. Give them some dinner, and the cats, and then go back to work. And then, I mean, sometimes I don't even drink a cup of coffee before I start or eat breakfast. I mostly don't. So around noon, you know, I might have a sandwich and then go back to work. Huh. But I, I love to work. I just I I love being completely absorbed in something else. That's very nice.
0: How long can you write in a given day without getting fatigued? Like, are you writing oh. that whole like that whole time, or do you do it for forty five minutes and get up and go for a walk? Like, how does that work? Oh, no. for you. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I should. <laughs> I should. No, I don't. I just keep going. Wow. I, I love doing it and it's, it, it you get momentum and then the, the and then you're hot and then you're doing it and you're happy and and that the, just the thrill of doing it carries me
0: hmm. and how long does it take you to so maybe get into that flow state the flow state being the place where painters musicians writers everyone's looking to get Find that area, so it's like you're yeah. you're creating downhill, so to speak. So how do you yeah, get that hill, momentum? That's
1: a good word. Yeah. Oh well, I'm it doesn't take long. I mean, I'm I, I'm waiting to do it while I'm feeding the dogs and mm-hmm. the cats, and as soon as I can get out there and start, the happier I am. So it's. I mean, I I I wake up wanting to do it, and maybe I was dreaming about it, or I was thinking about it before I went to sleep. It's a good. It's a. It's. It, I mean, frankly, the conditions of the world today aren't the greatest, and it's if you don't have to think about them for a while, <laughs> that's a good thing.
0: Yeah, yeah. It, so, what does your your workspace look like? And, you know, when you're writing, are you writing longhand or you go straight to a computer?
1: I used to write longhand. Now I use a computer. I was a good typist because I had a job as a secretary for a while i had various jobs in my life and uh i was a pretty good typist so the, the using the keyboard was easy but um but the quality of your writing changes when you write longhand and when you write with the computer mm. and mine did it just changed it's different a little different and uh I don't know. It's but I did it anyway because it was easy and quick. Yeah, and uh, and uh, and you can edit it very easily. It's not like editing longhand. Yeah, or typing or typing. So it. So I was glad to do it. But it. It. It's the stuff I wrote before longhand is a little different from what I wrote on the computer.
0: In what ways would you characterize that difference?
1: Well, it's I don't know. It's hard to describe. Mm-hmm. I. I. And, and, you know, I've been writing on a computer for a long time now, ever since computers came to being, so I, it's hard to remember, but, but, um, I, the flow is kind of better with longhand for some reason. I'm not sure why, maybe because it's a little slower, and okay. you, you write more slowly by hand than you do by typing, and, uh.
0: Yeah, I think it's, you're right. It's good to have a little yeah. more
1: time, I think.
0: Yeah, I think so. I think for some reason any time I do anything longhand for for what it's worth is it does feel a little more immersive in yeah. in a sense, if that makes any sense.
1: Yes, uh, that makes lots of sense. That 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 uh, that's, that, that describes it. Yeah. That's good.
0: <laughs> it so, you know, you've you're able to get a lot of this momentum and I think a lot of people what what they struggle with too is the the middle of a project, you're past the the honeymoon of you know the idea is great, the idea is green, and you just want to go with it, and then you get into the yeah. middle where things can get dark and ugly, and you haven't, <laughs> quite, you know, you're too far from home to turn back, and you're 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 not, you know, you're right there in the in the thick of it. So how do you deal and muddle through your way through the middle of of drafts and just keep forging ahead?
1: Well, I. I I edit all the time. That's uh-huh. the thing. I I read what I wrote yesterday. I read what I wrote last week. I and I, I can't train myself not to start doing this at the beginning. So the beginning of every book I've written is, in my opinion, better written than than the last chapter, which uh, I I probably was in a hurry because. It was a pub date or something, publication date, mm-hmm. and I was hurrying, and I and I noticed that when when a book comes back from the publisher with with the edit, you know they edit it and then you edit their edits and and at that and but I can't stop revising I can't and I think about it all the time I would still be revising the Harmless people if I had my way I'd <laughs> like to revise the Harmless people it's very naive it's a naive book. I wrote another book about the bushman called The Old Way which is vastly better and more sophisticated and uh, but The, the Arms People is still in print and it keeps going so that's okay too.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so when you're in the in the process that generative phase like what part do you feel most uh connected to like the editing, rewriting or the actual just like pure generation of material?
1: i I have to say the editing mm-hmm. I can't stop, I can't stop, and when I'm driving somewhere, I'm editing it in my mind, and I have a notebook in the car, so I pull over <laughs>
0: uh-huh. I
1: think I should have done, but editing is good, I mean it's good too. The more you edit, the better the book is well you can over edit I've done that
0: there's a you know this little known syndrome <laughs> called the you know the shiny new thing thing <laughs> and and when you're in the thick of something um you know sometimes it can be easy to get distracted by a new a new project or something and uh, and sometimes it's hard to finish things and uh, you know you've had a career of finishing like, very long projects and uh, un- untold essays and magazine articles i imagine as well so what's the what have you found helpful to ensure that you that you finish something before you start getting distracted by like the next new story that just is is gnawing at your brain
1: well, I would probably go to the next new story if it was if it was gnawing at my brain mm-hmm. and trash what i <laughs> <laughs> but i have a i have a two compulsions one is about worrying i worry worry worry, worry about everything, which is i think a very good thing to do because that's why my house hasn't burned down and why my dogs haven't got run over and so forth and so on so far but um but, uh I mean, my kids and everybody says I worry too much, and they don't worry at all. But somebody has to do the worrying, so it's me. <laughs> and, and, uh, so that's one thing uh, of, of a distraction. But the other thing is, is finishing things. And if something is unfinished, it just nags at me until it is finished. I mean, if I, I go and get the mail and there's a bill and I need to pay it, so I pay it right then rather than – putting it off that kind of thing yeah and i mean that takes your time but it but at least you don't have to worry about things you have <laughs> things that aren't finished so it's it's that's uh, just a personality problem i think
0: Hmm. and it's uh something i kind of cropped up the other day that i wanted to you know ask you you know you've been you know, your work has been so, you know, prolific and, and just, uh, you know, and beautifully rendered. And I wonder if, um, you know, if you look at your strengths and weaknesses in your, you know, how you go about the work, what, what has always, you know, been your struggles and what's been your strengths. I wonder what did you choose? It, Consciously or unconsciously to lean into would would it be like to lean into your strengths or to try to bring up your weaknesses to your strengths? Like, did you ever give much thought to that?
1: Oh, it's a wonderful question. I think weaknesses would be making mistakes or a weakness that I have and much too much of is that I. I, if I get a piece of information, uh, I'll turn now to my colleague, Cy Montgomery, with who I wrote the, with who, who we wrote the essays for the globe and the book, Tamed and Untamed. She had tra- training as a journalist.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And she's, she's like a scientist. I mean, she, if she she's if she gets a fact, so to speak, she doesn't just assume that it's that's right. She checks it and double checks it, and she's sure. So when she says something, it's true. Okay. My weakness is that I don't do that enough. Mm. And my, I, I mean, I'm I, I'm perfectly happy to accept <laughs> <laughs> certain things as true, and they they may be partly true or maybe outdated. They're not completely false. I hope, but they, but they. Uh, it, I mean, I recently wrote another book about called. Uh, which is still, it's with the publisher now, and it'll be out in uh, March, I think. And it's called uh, The Hidden Life of Life, <laughs> a, walk through the, a Walk Through the Reaches of Time. And th- that required an awful lot of stuff that I had to, to study. I mean, I couldn't, I don't know that much about the predecessors of mammals, for instance, um, without looking up. Without reading some of the scientific stuff, but I, but uh, so I, I hope I have done a good enough job on, on, on the fact-checking end of things uh, because the book is now with the publisher, mm-hmm. and I, I did try, but I mean I, I, I just don't do it as well as I does. The other thing is that uh, what I want is for the for the sentence to be good. I I don't care nearly as much about the truth as I care about the sound of the sentence. Mm -hmm. And that's led me astray quite a lot. I mean, I would remove a word or change a word, even if it was the correct word, and put in a less correct word, if the less correct word sounds better in the sentence. Mm -hmm. And I'm I'm an aspiring poet at heart, not an aspiring scientist.
0: (laughs) And and uh, you know, and being you know friends with with Cy and being a writing partner with her, and you know, what has, how has that that partnership helped, you know, like you, you know, get to you and you improve, or um, you know, what have you learned? Like you said, the the, the fact checking and that sort of rigor. Um of double checking things was something you really learned and took away from psy um what else you know being in close proximity and then prof- professional proximity as in the book like what is that relationship added to your your life and career like having that kind of a partner in a sense
1: oh I think it's added very very much it's it's uh, uh we read each other's works I mean I show her what I'm writing, and she shows me what she's writing, you know pretty much. And uh especially if I have doubts or she doesn't she has doubts and we're I mean it, it's in a way uh, I mean I love her work I really admire her work and she likes mine so I know when she sends it that I'm gonna like it but it it, it we we can help we, we can help each other catch things that aren't aren't right and or things that could be done better we we I I've seldom find anything in her work, but it's but it's a good thing. It's a good checkpoint. It's a good um, safety valve there, um, and, and I find that very helpful. Also, she she has a very wide. Um, I mean, she, the animals she studied are are range from. The octopuses, which she's just written a very successful book about the soul of the octopus. And, uh, uh, to, she does scuba diving and, she studied tarantulas. And, you know, I, I would love to do that. I just haven't had the, the time right now. And, uh, uh I, uh, um, another thing is I, I had kids and she didn't. And, uh, so that, um, Put, was a little bit of a limit on my doing such things as scuba diving
2: mm-hmm.
1: and uh, and uh, uh, uh also my husband in recent years he he was he became ill and he's no longer living
2: oh, I'm and sorry.
1: Uh, i was i stayed with him and uh, um, so our 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 traveling well exp- well i mean it's not that i didn't do a lot of traveling i did but But it's been limited in recent years because of that.
0: So, and what is, you know, as we, you know, I want to be mindful of your time here. So, um, and I'll let you get out of here in a a moment. But I I wonder, uh, you know, you've got the Hidden Life of Life coming up. um, But, uh, you know, what is still, you know, driving you and excites you when you, you know, flip open the computer and, and get to work? You know, what is... You know still bringing you joy when you start a writing project or start the research
1: oh the the fun that it is to do that, how much I like doing that that drives me I mean it doesn't drive me intensely there, and when I'm very busy now, like there's been a lot of uh, interviews and a lot of book signings and appearances and stuff, and that i mean it's very hard to to for me to write and get involved in something if I've got. Upcoming things every couple of days, that sort of thing. That you just can't focus. So I'm working on a quilt. You can do that with a quilt, but you can't do that with a book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, and uh, th- just the joy of doing it is what is what is what uh, gets me there.
0: Yeah, just the the sh- the sheer enjoyment of the actual process versus, like, the outcome of the process. Yes,
1: the sheer enjoyment of the actual process,
0: yes, yes, yes. Fantastic. Well, uh, Elizabeth, thank you so much for jumping on the, on the podcast for the show to talk about your career and, you know, your life and your writing process. This was a, a lot of fun. And, uh, you know, Tamed and Untamed is a, is a great collection of your work and size about animals, wild and domestic. It's a, it's a wonderful little collection. And, uh, you know, I can't wait to dig into more of your work. And, um, yeah, maybe we can have you back on for when your next book comes out.
1: Oh, that was very nice. Thanks so much. This was, I thought, a very, um, interviews vary. Some some are, some feel a little better than others, and this one f- feels very good, and I'm very happy. Thank oh, you. Oh,
0: fantastic. That makes me feel good. Well, thank you for the time, and we'll be in touch.
1: Thanks very much.
0: All All right. Thank you. Take care.
1: Yeah, you too. Bye.
0: Well, there you have it, friends. My CNFers. I love it, baby. Another podcast in the books. What'd you get out of it? What are you going to take away from it? What are you struggling with? Feel free to email me or ping me on Twitter. I'd love to hear from you. Also, I've got this slick monthly newsletter where I send out reading recommendations and what you may have missed from the world of the Creative Nonfiction Podcast every month. Like I said, monthly, the first of the month. Head over to the website, brendanomera.com and sign up. Once a month, no spam. Can't beat it. And lastly, that friendly reminder to leave an honest review on iTunes. Editorial offer stands. Thanks for all you do by being a part of this little community. And I'll be here next week. I hope you will too. Thanks for listening.